This is Our American Stories. And the Thanksgiving story, well, you're about to hear it for the hour. It didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But the story of its miraculous birth and the pangs that accompanied its delivery to the New World began hundreds of years before this inauguration. What you are about to hear is the spellbinding story of how it all began and what it means to us today. They want to hit a Thanksgiving song. All right. All right. This is uh, this is a Thanksgiving song. I hope you enjoy it. Turkey, lurkey, do and turkey, lurkey, dap. I eat that turkey, then I take a nap. Thanksgiving is a special night. Oh, I love turkey on Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanksgiving is the only American holiday that has actually remained relatively innocent. It's not something that we have been able to commercialize. But there's something going on here more than feasting family and football. And I'm not talking about the time you constructed a belt-buckled paper hat. What is it about these pilgrims? Why do we pay so much attention to these immigrants to the New World? They were always viewed as irrelevant, weird, and different. They didn't start a college. The Massachusetts colony did. That college is called Harvard. The Pilgrims never became rich or influential. In fact, William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Plantation, and the man who documents the founding of the Plymouth Colony, thinks at the end of his life that everything the Pilgrims had done had been a failure. So what is it about their experience that makes them so worthy of attention? As I may truly unfold the story of Plymouth Plantation, I must begin at the very root. As with many immigrants, their story begins thousands of miles away. It is told through the writings of one man who lived it. The year is 1607. The place, Scrooby Manor, in North Nottinghamshire, England. Under the flag of religion. Then said the Lord, I shall endeavor to manifest this history in a plain style with singular regard unto the simple truth in all things, at least as near to the truth as my slender judgment can attain. That was William Bradford. His record of everything that happens on their voyage and arrival to the New World is our best source of information. He keeps detailed records because he believes that what they are doing is tremendously important. Bradford's writing is later published as Of Plymouth Plantation, but it is not published until some 230 years later, in the 1850s. Lonely and intelligent, in a world that feels increasingly precarious and adrift to him, the 12-year-old Bradford seeks solace in the Bible. Bradford writes that reading the scriptures makes a great impression upon him, and the more he reads, the more troubled he becomes at the gulf between the world he sees around him and the simplicity and purity of the gospel. Oh, Father, who 
heaven. Hallowed be thy He had this profound sense as a 12-year-old that the congregation he was a part of was corrupt, that the church was moving them in a direction that was not right, that they prayed to the depraved beliefs of mortal men that were moving them away from God. And so this was a deep conviction. And I think there you have the beginnings of a very complex, inward-looking person who was improbably preparing for the ultimate journey. In 1607, Bradford is an orphan living on his uncle's farm, but his passion is his faith. And without a prince, two men become his mentors. This famous and worthy man, John Robinson, was our pastor for many years. And without teraphim. Mr. Brewster, a reverend man like a father to me, became an elder of our church. Love a woman beloved of her. These two men guided us in all things. It is they who labored in this secret church to have the right worship of God and discipline of Christ according to the simplicity of the gospel. Yet others persisted to disturb the peace of our poor persecuted church. Return and seek the Lord their God. One wouldn't know it by looking at them, but these worshippers are breaking the law. The official state religion is the Anglican Church of England. King Henry VIII established it 70 years earlier in 1534. He placed himself at the head of the church, replacing the Catholic Pope in Rome. English Protestants were overjoyed. They saw England joining the great Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther and the overthrow of the old Catholic Church. Here's Dermot McCulloch, professor of church history at Oxford University. The old church had power because it said that it could help people to get to heaven by saying masses for their soul. Luther and the Protestants said that wasn't so. God had all the power, we have none. And by saying that, they said that the old church had no power. That is what split the Western world apart in the 16th century. But real change in the Church of England is slow to come. Many of the pilgrim separatists are fined or go to jail for not attending the Church of England and for starting their own separate congregation that secretly meets in people's homes. In the early 17th century, the Church of England still had remnants of the past like stained glass. The Church still had bishops and priests and deacons with cathedrals, choirs. In other words, it looked rather more like the old church, and a lot of Protestants did not like that one little bit. And when we come back, more of William Bradford's struggles back in England. We're celebrating the story of Thanksgiving here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Thanksgiving, 
and we go back to William Bradford and his struggles back in England. These pilgrim separatists feel the King's Church can never be purified. They must separate from it completely. That's the difference between a Puritan and a separatist. Puritans simply wanted to change it, make it better. Separatists make another big leap of the imagination. They say you shouldn't have a Church of England. You shouldn't have a church which is connected with the civil power. And in the 16th century, that's a very big deal. Because of the persecutions from the Church of England, the pilgrims decide to run away, to leave England in mass, to leave behind everything that they have known because their Christian conscience demands it. They arrive in the very libertarian seaport city of Amsterdam, Holland, which is the most exciting, prosperous, cosmopolitan city in the whole world, known for its religious toleration. You can do anything you want there, and the government won't interfere with you. Amsterdam's reputation in the early 1600s is about the same as it is today. A city famous for its prostitution and 500-plus alehouses. So when the pious pilgrims arrive in Sin City, it wasn't according to their expectations. Within a year, they decide to move again, 22 miles south, to the much smaller city university town of Leiden. Leiden is a much better fit, but shortly after arriving, another idea begins to generate a great deal of enthusiasm from some of the more daring leaders of this tiny little group. They feel called to move again, but where? Most are content with their labors here. We labor only as God wishes. Yet some prefer and choose the prisons in England rather than liberty in Holland with these afflictions. Faith, if some better and easier place could be found, it could draw many and take away these discouragements. And where would we go? Where could we go? What's of America? There are vast and unpeopled countries in America which are fruitful and fit for habitation. I have not heard that America is unpeopled. There are no civil men there, but only savages who mean. This is an extraordinarily audacious uh, proposition because up until this time, uh, there was only one existing supposedly successful English settlement, Jamestown, and that was hardly a success. Uh, People were dying at a frightening rate every year. The pilgrims decide to make their home in the new world where they can pursue their godly path without interference and without compromise. But how do these poor pilgrims get the money they need in order to finance the trip? They apply to investors who might like the idea of exploiting a bunch of religious fanatics like themselves. A deal was made. They use a big part of their very limited resources in order to purchase the aging vessel called the Speedwell. But the Speedwell will fail to live up to its name. She was called the Speedwell, and this was intended to be a vessel that would provide them with a way to explore the coast, search for furs, and if the worst should happen, it would provide them with a a method of escape uh, from the New World. About 55 pilgrim separatists leave Holland on the Speedwell for England. With a prosperous wind, we came in short time to Southampton. There we made port and found a bigger ship come from London lying ready, with all the rest of our company. The pilgrims see for the first time another ship loaded with supplies, waiting to join them for the trip across the Atlantic Ocean. 
This supply ship is called the Mayflower. The Mayflower was a merchant vessel, a cargo ship. She was not designed to carry passengers. She's about 180 tons, which means you could fit 180 casks of wine, tons of wine in its hold. She was beak-bowed, square-rigged, with high castle-like structures fore and aft. She was a very reliable ship, standard transportation of the early 17th century. The recent arrivals from Leiden are reunited with William Brewster and two fellow separatists, John Carver and Robert Cushman, who have been hard at work setting up the voyage. On August 5, 1620, as they prepare to depart, the pilgrims say their farewells, which are deeply emotional. Edward Winslow, who was one of the chief men going along on the voyage, describes the scene as follows. We refreshed ourselves, after our tears, with the singing of psalms, making joyful melody in our hearts as well as with the voice. And indeed, it was the sweetest melody that ever mine ears have heard. And then, with mutual embraces and tears, they took their leaves, one of the other, which proved to be the last leave to many of them. After three years of planning and preparation, two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower, are finally on their way to America, on what will prove to be the most historic voyage in human history. They weren't the people that you would expect to be founding a new colony. They weren't soldiers, they were not emissaries of a foreign government, they were not particularly well provided with supplies. At least half of them were separatists, that is to say radical Protestants, who were religious exiles, who had been living in Leiden, the Dutch Republic. They weren't the people you would automatically expect to be founding a new outpost of the British Empire. The Mayflower is under the command of Master Christopher Jones. He isn't a religious man but he is a remarkably decent one. He is so moved by the pilgrim's devotion and faith that he offers to bunk with his petty officers and gives his cabin to the women and small children. He and his ship have been hired to take the pilgrim's provisions to America and then return to England. The two ships travel west for seven days and then to their shock and dismay, the Speedwell begins to wallow and take on water. Not soon after the Speedwell has trouble, the master of the Speedwell noted that um, she was taking on more water than they could handle. Here's how passenger William Bradford chronicles this moment. We had not gone far, but Mr. Reynolds, the master of the lesser ship, complained that he had found his ship so leaky as he durst not put further to sea till she was mended. Because of the leaky Speedwell, the ships do not turn back once, but two times. Can you imagine the miles that they retrace their steps all the way back to England? The pilgrims lose an entire month while attempts are made and valuable food provisions are sold in order to repair the Speedwell. It's early September. This is not the time you want to sail to America. Westerly gales are screaming across the Atlantic. They'd be right in your teeth if you head out. William Bradford writes that some 20 passengers decide the voyage is not a very good idea and get off the ship for good. He also writes, It was judged that the Speedwell would not prove sufficient for the voyage. 
upon which it was resolved to dismiss her and proceed with the Mayflower alone. On September 6th, 1620, fearfully late in the season, everyone got on the Mayflower, left Plymouth Harbor, and set out on her own across the Atlantic. Because of the Speedwell having to stay behind, there are many more people on Mayflower than they anticipated carrying initially. There were ultimately 102 passengers on, on Mayflower on a relatively small ship. It's a dark, dank, airless space, less than five feet high. So, you, you know, you were hunched as you walked up and down. There were some animals down there, goats and pigs and chickens and provisions. It was more like a cave, I think, than a place fit for human habitation. Along with 102 passengers on the Mayflower was between 25 and 35 crewmen on board. All being now compact together in one ship, we put to sea again with a prosperous wind, which was some encouragement unto us. The story of Thanksgiving continues after these messages. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But my goodness, there's so much more to the story. When we come back, that trip across the Atlantic to the New World, here on Our American Stories, and go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is our American story celebrating Thanksgiving. We now pick up with the pilgrims sailing across the Atlantic on board the Mayflower with Captain Jones and his crew of delinquents. The rough and tumble crew do not take their cues from their kind captain. Bradford writes, Yet, according to the usual manner, many were afflicted with seasickness. A bloody psalm singing, God-fearing, puke-stock-and-bean farmer going to America. <laughs> See them quail, living little kicksy-wixies. One of the seamen of a lusty, able body, which made him the more haughty. He would always be condemning the poor people in their sickness. 
and cursing us daily with grievous execrations. <laughs> Into the bucket, girl! Worse than the owls! The haughty seaman tells the sick pilgrims how much he looks forward to the day he could sew them up in shrouds and feed them to the fishes. There's no sanitation facilities. If you are seasick, which many are, and have to vomit, if you have to perform your other bodily functions, you're doing it in a slop bucket and you're trying to hit the target on a moving deck. And a lot of people probably miss, so that it's not surprising that people comment on the stench below decks. Shipboard fare in the 17th century was pretty much what shipboard fare would be for centuries to come, and that is miserable. You've got beef in barrels, heavily salted, to preserve it. One daily ration of the ship's diet would give a sailor or a passenger on a ship like Mayflower over 6,000 milligrams of salt in the day. Sodium intake at that level causes dehydration and hypothermia, as well as having long-term effects like high blood pressure. The big problem in the 17th century was drinking water. The drinking water in, in England was not reliable, so people relied on beer primarily. And uh, children drank it, everyone drank it. And going to sea, the ordinary ration was one gallon of beer per day per person, which uh, comes out to, uh, you know, rather a lot of beer. The Mayflower is now halfway across the Atlantic, and the relentless teasing of the pilgrims is about to end for good. Of the haughty sailor who so figged us with his daily curses, it pleased God to smite this young man with a grievous disease and so was himself the first that was thrown overboard. Thus, his curses light on his own head. And it was an astonishment to all his fellows, for they noted it to be the just hand of God upon him. The death of a sailor is answered by the arrival of a new passenger. Oceanus Hopkins. Only one other passenger dies on the voyage. William Button, a servant, ignores the urgings of Captain Jones to drink his daily portion of lemon juice in order to prevent scurvy. And this disobedience costs him his life. Then, on November 9th, 1620, after more than two months at sea, a crew member spies a line of high bluffs gleaming far off in the early dawn light and shouts out excitedly to Captain Jones. But their jubilation quickly dims as word races through the ship that they made landfall far north of their intended Manhattan Island destination. Muskets first. Keep them dry. On Friday, December 16th, 1620, the Mayflower with its cargo of sickened and sea-weary passengers and crew anchors a mile offshore. Everything was wrong. I mean, they had to reach the shore by wading through ice-cold water to the shoreline. And Bradford says, at one point, The weather was very cold, and the spray of the sea lighting on our coats froze so hard we were as if we had been glazed. And they caught cold and they died. In the harsh winter ahead, half of them die. A fire during a snowstorm burns up much of their precious winter clothing. 
but the fire fails to reach the barrels of gunpowder. In January and February, sometimes two and three died in a day. Bradford calls it the heart of winter. It's just a very grim time. The biggest toll, the most painful toll, was by March, 13 of the 18 wives die. They die keeping their children alive. All seven daughters live, and 10 of the 13 sons live. Somehow they keep their hopes up by coming up every Sunday to listen to the preaching of William Brewster, who assures them that this is all God's will. Finally, by the middle of March, there's a turning point. It happens on a Friday. It's fair, and the sky is blue. They are still weak. They are still fearful when they spot a tall, muscular Indian wearing only a loincloth and carrying a bow break cover from the line of trees among their huts and walk boldly into their camp. They shout out, Indian, Indian coming. coming! Indian coming! Indian coming! With rifle in hand, they approach with incredible caution. But as he draws within range, the Indian shouts out in perfect English, Welcome! The pilgrims responded in kind. And then, in a fateful interchange, the next word from the Indian is, have you got any beer? The pilgrims are caught flat-footed. They don't have any beer. They respond, Our beer is gone. Would you like some brandy? And the answer, to no one's surprise, is a wholehearted yes. As they drink the brandy, they discover that this particular Indian, whose name is Samoset, developed his English skills and his taste for beer by spending time with English fishermen who tried to colonize on the New England coast. What Samoset said that was particularly interesting is that there was a Christian Indian by the name of Squanto who spoke perfect English and was living nearby. Squanto became a Christian and spoke English because he was captured and made a slave for nine years in England before he was able to buy his freedom and return home on a ship captained by John Smith. Yes, the John Smith of Pocahontas. As Smith's ship departed, Squanto was almost immediately captured for a second time and sent to the much crueler Spain. Then, just as he was about to be sent to North Africa, where he would have been a slave for the rest of his undoubtedly short life, some Catholic friars were able to buy and rescue a few of the Indian slaves, including Squanto. So Squanto lives with the friars in a monastery, and he becomes a Christian. He also learns to speak perfect English and perfect Spanish, and learns to pray every day, and becomes quite devout. With the help of these friars, who had befriended him and became quite impressed by his fine mind and his remarkable character, he gets enough money to buy his way back for the second time. Two months before the pilgrims arrive to the Pawtuxet village in what is today Massachusetts, Squanto finds his village absolutely deserted. Everyone from his tribe has died from a series of plagues that swept across New England. Once Squanto meets the pilgrims, he will change everything. As William Bradford declares in his own recollections, as many as were able began to plant their corn, in which service Squanto stood us in great stead, shown us the manner how to set it. 
Also, he told us unless we got fish and set it with the seed, the corn would come to nothing. The fish helps the earth. It's it's we're feeding our mother. He was our interpreter and was a special instrument sent of God for our good. Squanto never leaves the pilgrims until the day he dies. This is Our American Stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And when we come back, the final chapter. This is our American stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And we pick it off with the pilgrims being back on their feet, thanks to Squanto, who teaches them how to survive in the new world and guides them in building a trusting relationship with a neighboring Indian tribe that he's been living with. Now let's return to the story. On October of 1621, Bradford writes about the preparations for what we now know as the first Thanksgiving. Thus our peace and acquaintance was pretty well established with the natives about us. We began now to gather in the small harvest we had and to fit up our houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength. We had all things in good plenty, for some were exercised in fishing, about cod and bass and other fish of which every family had their portion. There was a great store of wild turkeys, of which we took many. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent men on fowling, so we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together. They've made peace with the Indians, they had a good harvest. So they decided to have something that was familiar to them back in England, a kind of harvest feast. It was like God had sent them a strong message, okay, you're on the right path. You've actually made it through the first real test, which is surviving your year and having enough to continue. Squanto's close friend and Indian chief, Massasoit, arrives with 90 of his braves who are carrying a bunch of dressed deer. The table is set and the first Thanksgiving prayer is said. Oh Lord, hear us, Lord. How few, weak, and raw were we at our first beginning in this howling wilderness, in the midst of strangers. And yet, God, thou hast wrought this peace for us. Thou hast brought us these allies. The real heroes on this first Thanksgiving are the last four surviving pilgrim women who prepare the feast for the 140 attendees. Not surprisingly, 
These first Thanksgiving friends spend their post-meal time partaking in activities that are not too far from the spirit in which we partake in them today. They might have been racing, they might have been wrestling, they might have been competing with bow and arrow. I bet they were drinking together. It's a rowdy affair, it's a male-dominated affair more than anything else. They put on, to the best of their ability, a display of their weapons and their martial organization. So both sides are showing off their strength. Amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Massazoid's men went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, upon the captain and others. One thing that's very important is that deer were a high-status food. They were very carefully bestowing these as marks of respect. For three days we entertained and feasted. Three days of celebrating. In Native society, that's typical. As a matter of fact, that's probably short. Did the Wampanoags eat the English out of house and home during these three days? Quite possibly. But the English are free to come and visit the villages of their native allies and receive similar hospitality. That's how kin treat one another. That's what the Wampanoags expect by virtue of this alliance. That's the point of the whole exercise. William Bradford and Massasoit will remain friends and allies for as long as they live despite increasing tensions from the arrival of thousands more Europeans into the Cape Cod territory. Bradford, though uncertain of the colony he founded, was certain about the final destination of his pilgrimage. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, not having seen them afar off, being persuaded of them, and embracing them, and confessing that they were both strangers and pilgrims on the earth. But they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God was not ashamed to be called their God. And he hath prepared for them a city. The pilgrims could never have dreamed of how much their quest for a godly republic would transform the world they were sailing towards, the searchers themselves, and the nation that would rise up long after they were gone, consecrated to their memory. We love the story of Thanksgiving because it's about alliance and abundance and envisioning a future where Native Americans and colonial Americans can come together and celebrate the providences of a single God. But part of the reason that they were grateful was that they had been in such misery, that they had lost so many people on both sides. So in some way, 
that day of thanksgiving is also coming out of mourning. It's also coming out of grief. And this abundance that is a relief from that loss. But we don't think about the loss. We think about the abundance. Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays. And that abundance is found in family, in going home for the holidays. If there is such a thing as a typical American Thanksgiving, the Spikiotich family dinner might just qualify. Every year, several generations come together over a boisterous, chaotic ritual no one wants to miss. Do we have gravy? It's truly an American holiday to me. I mean, this is our holiday. Nobody else has it like we do. The people who are here come together and we all understand what it is that we're being thankful for. This is our American holiday. From Atlantic to Pacific. Today in our society where there are no clear answers, we look back at a time in the holiday such as Thanksgiving that once had clear answers. This is very simple. The pilgrims stood for piety, they stood for patriotism. They knew where they stood. We don't. So we look back and we see Thanksgiving as a time where everybody is in a golden afternoon sitting together around the Thanksgiving table and the families are secure and the ideals are secure and there's football on the television, everything's wonderful. And it just fits very well. Thanksgiving retains a lot of meaning for Americans today. I think the people are conscious of that. The fact that they have food on the table, the fact that they can gather together, that has meaning to them and just enjoying a good time with your friends around a table and having a wonderful meal. Those are our true pleasures in life and shouldn't be underestimated. Thanksgiving makes us pause and say, we're lucky we have this. What started as a makeshift meal in a tiny New England village has today become a national celebration of feasting and family togetherness. Thanksgiving may not be the very religious day it once was, but the last Thursday in November is still clearly a sacred date on America's national calendar. For the holidays you can't beat home sweet home For the holidays you And great job on that, Greg. And what a story that is. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. And we learned about the abundance. And my goodness, we learned about the scarcity. We learned about the joy, but we also learned about the grief. By the way, the grief of simply leaving home and leaving everything you know, that's grief. Anybody who's ever done that, I know my grandfather. He shared it with me. He left Lebanon but it was easier then. Leaving home, then losing so many people, so many women, so many men. What a story, a uniquely American story. 
and we share it with you here on Our American Stories. our American stories, and for the hour, or at least a part of it, the life of C.S. Lewis. And I want to do a brief reading. I rarely get personal and bring my own personal life into the show, but this is a story where sometimes you have to, because I've got some stories too, and this may have been the, the biggest one in my life. And so I share it with you, and the impact C.S. Lewis had on my life. I wrote this for the National View Letter to a Christian Nation. Any one of us who have come to Christ late in life know the factors that led us to him. The Spirit was tugging at me for a while. C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity started it. Like me, he was once an atheist, until he could be one no more. Quote, In 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, wrote Lewis. Perhaps the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. A few committed people of faith did the rest for me as I witnessed in them the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the power of their lives. The way they lived made them stand apart from other people I knew. In the fall of 2007, I became the most excited and reluctant convert in all of northern Mississippi. And I'm not alone. I would say that C.S. Lewis has done this for millions of people. He's sold 100 million-plus books. I think that's testimony. And on this day in history, C.S. Lewis died in 1963. You may know him best as the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. But as you'll see, he was so much more. Born in Ireland, young Lewis loved animals, stories, songs, and myths, laying a foundation for his adult life. Though raised in a religious church-going family, Lewis found the rituals uninspiring. He thought their church services were more a statement of politics than of faith, a weekly declaration that they were not Catholics. Seeing religion was a chore and swayed by Roman poet and philosopher Lucretius' argument that, quote, had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. Lewis became an atheist. He would later describe his teenage self as being angry with God for not existing. In her turmoil notwithstanding, young Lewis excelled in school, earning a scholarship at Oxford. Shortly after arriving at the university in 1917 for the summer term, Lewis joined the officer training corps and was soon commissioned as a second lieutenant in the 3rd Battalion of the Somerset Light Infantry. He arrived at the front lines in France's Somme Valley on his 19th birthday, as if he needed more reasons to not believe in God. 
Lewis was introduced to trench warfare. How could there be a God in a world such as this? In April of 1918, a friendly artillery shell landed short, killing two of Lewis's friends and sending him to the rear. Depressed, despondent, Lewis healed his physical wounds and returned to Oxford. In four years of study, Lewis earned three first-class degrees from Oxford in Greek and Latin literature, philosophy and ancient history, and English. Then is now, finding a job with any or all of those degrees is harder than one might like, so Lewis became a teaching fellow at Oxford's Magdalen College. All through this, Lewis was making and deepening friendships that would deeply affect the rest of his life. At Oxford, Lewis joined a literary discussion group called The Inklings, whose members included J.R.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson. Not bad. The group met at a pub called The Eagle and Child. They called it The Bird and Baby, and worked to improve each other's works in progress. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings was first shared at these pub meetings. Wow. Be a fly on the wall there, huh? So were some of Lewis's stories. Inspired by his reading and friendships with Tolkien, Dyson, and others, Lewis came to doubt his atheism. First, he came to believe in a universal spirit, becoming a theist, if you will. Lewis was further moved by the words of G.K. Chesterton and others, and deep conversations with friends. Lewis would later liken his conversion to Christianity as being hunted down by God, or even being defeated by God, in a game of chess. In late September 1931, C.S. Lewis took a nighttime stroll with J.R.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson. The trio started talking about myths, the very things that Lewis so loved as a child. Tolkien convinced Lewis that such myths were God's way of preparing us for the Christian story. In the same walk that would last until morning, Dyson told Lewis about how belief in Christ liberated believers from their sins so they could become better people. Three days after that odd all-nighter, Lewis and a friend rode motorcycles to visit the zoo. Lewis would later recall, quote, When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and when we reached the zoo, I did. Checkmate. Fast forward to the start of World War II. Lewis tried to re-enter military service to instruct cadets, but the government wanted him to write propaganda. Lewis declined, but he began speaking on British Broadcasting Corporation Radio. He's perhaps best known for a series of religious talks broadcast over the BBC as London was under siege by Nazi bombers. Royal Air Force Chief Marshal Sir Donald Hardman later wrote of this trying time and of Lewis, quote, It was a time of strain and difficulty for all of us. The war, the whole of life, everything tended to seem pointless. We needed, many of us, a key to the meaning of the universe. Lewis provided just that. Better still, he gave us back our old traditional Christian faith so that we could accept it with new confidence, with something like certainty. Without ever being political, military, or jingoistic, I am sure that he did, perhaps without meaning to, a great deal for what is called the war effort. The transcripts of these talks would turn into perhaps... Lewis's best-known non-fiction book, Mere Christianity. Sadly, most of the audio had been lost, but we have a little, and we'll play it for you when we come back. This consequential man, by the way, as relevant as ever, 
and a person that literally and figuratively changed my life forever. Our American Stories, the life of C.S. Lewis, continues after these messages. Our American Stories on this day in history. C.S. Lewis died in 1963. And by the way, he impacted dramatically Chuck Colson's life, too. We covered that in his life story on this day in history for Colson. Now let's take a listen to some of the last surviving audio of C.S. Lewis's broadcast talks on the BBC. This from Beyond Personality, The New Man. Here, Lewis begins by explaining the changes that Christians undergo. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self, and that this process goes on very far inside. One's most private wishes, one's point of view, are the things that have to be changed. That's why unbelievers complain that Christianity is a very selfish religion. Isn't it very selfish, even morbid, they say, to be always bothering about the inside of your own soul, instead of thinking of humanity? Now, what would an NCO say to a soldier who had a dirty rifle, and when told to clean it, replied, but Sergeant, isn't it very selfish, even morbid, to be always bothering about the inside of your own rifle? instead of thinking of the United Nations. Well, we needn't bother about what the NCO would actually say. You see the point? The man is not going to be much use to the United Nations if his rifle isn't fit to shoot with. In the same way, people who are still acting from their old natural selves won't do much real permanent good to other people. Let me explain that. History isn't just a story of bad people doing bad things. It's quite as much a story of people trying to do good things. But somehow something goes wrong. Take the common expression, cold as charity. How do we come to say that? From experience. We've learnt how unsympathetic, patronising and conceited charitable people often are. And yet, hundreds and thousands of them started out really anxious to do good. And when they'd done it, somehow it just wasn't as good as it ought to have been. The old story, what you are comes out in what you do. A crab apple tree can't produce eating apples. As long as the old self is there, its taint will be over all we do. We try to be religious and become Pharisees. We try to be kind and become patronizing. 
social service ends in red tape and officialdom. Unselfishness becomes a form of showing off. I don't mean, of course, that we're to stop trying to be good. We've got to do the best we can. If the soldier's fool enough to go into battle with a dirty rifle, he mustn't run away. But I do mean that the real cure lies far deeper. Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. And that's the magic of C.S. Lewis. He was a layman, speaking to layman in layman's terms. He continues by diving into a discussion of change, or evolution, if you will. The change won't, for most of us, happen suddenly. And I must admit that for most Christians, it'll only be beginning to the very end of our present lives. But there are some in whom it goes further, even before death, far enough for you to see it. Their very faces and voices are different. When you meet them, you know you're up against something which, so to speak, begins where you leave off, something stronger, quieter, happier, more alive than ordinary humanity. Now, that's just where Christianity, as I think, has the real answer to a question a lot of modern people are asking. Everyone's heard of evolution, how men evolve from lower types of life. And people often ask, what's the next step? When is the thing beyond man going to appear? Some imaginative writers even try to picture what the next step will be like, but they usually end in nonsense about men with six arms or wings or something of that kind. But the Christians think those people are on the wrong tack. The next step has already appeared. The next step is from being mere creatures to being sons of God. The new kind of man appeared in Christ. And other new men, little Christ, are already to be found, dotted here and there about the earth. We Christians don't call it evolution because we believe it isn't something coming up out of blind nature, but something coming down from the world of light and power knowledge beyond all nature. But if you like to call it evolution, do. The next step is here. You can become one of the new men in Christ if you like. Or, if you prefer, you can refuse the step and sink back. Now, if we take the step, it involves losing what we now call ourselves. That doesn't mean that all the people who accept Christ are going to be exactly like one another. I know it sounds as if it did. If there's one Christ, and he's to be in us all, actually replacing our personalities with his own, what difference will there be between us? And that's a very fair question that Lewis poses, and he tackles it head-on by using everyday experiences to explain something very abstract. Now, here I've got a rather difficult thing to say. On the one hand, it isn't true that we shall lose our personal differences by letting Christ take us over. On the other hand, I don't think Christ can take us over as long as we're bothering about what will happen 
to our personality. Can I take the first point first? If a person didn't know about salt, wouldn't he think that anything with such a strong taste would kill the taste of all the other things in any dish you put it into? We know that as a matter of fact, it brings out their real taste. Well, it's rather like that with Christ. When you've completely given up yourself to his personality, you will then, for the first time in your life, be developing into a real person. He made the whole world. He invented, as an author invents characters in a book, all the different men that you and I were intended to be. Our real selves are, so to speak, all waiting for us in him. What I call myself now is hardly a person at all. It's mainly a meeting place for various natural forces, desires and fears, etc., some of which come from my ancestors and some from my education, some perhaps from devils. The self you were really intended to be is something that lives not from nature, but from God. At the beginning of these talks, I said there were personalities in God. Well, I go further now. There are no real personalities anywhere else. I mean, no full, complete personalities. It's only when you allow yourself to be drawn into his life that you turn into a true person. But, on the other hand, it's just no good at all going to Christ for the sake of developing a fuller personality. As long as that's what you're bothering about, you haven't begun. Because the very first step towards getting a real self is to forget about the self. It will come only if you're looking for something else. That holds, you know, even for earthly matters. Even in literature or art, no man who cares about originality will ever be original. It's the man who's only thinking about doing a good job or telling the truth who becomes really original and doesn't notice it. Even in social life, you'll never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking what sort of impression you make. And that's C.S. Lewis. On this day in history, C.S. Lewis died in 1963. And as always, are this days in history is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu and watch their remarkable series and class and seminar on C.S. Lewis. Again, this is Our American Stories. American stories. When you hear that music, it means it's time for another edition 
of Steve Goldberg's Daydreams. You heard that right. We're going to hear a dude's daydreams. And not just any dude. Steve is the former chairman of the sociology department at City College, and he's the foremost expert on patriarchy and a dude who daydreams a lot. By the way, he's the kind of teacher, he's retired now, who no matter what he would have taught, you would have taken his class, because he's just interesting. And here is Steve Goldberg's latest talentless daydream. I'm a 21-year-old and one of the uh, only eight recent college graduates who have been chosen to spend six months in the White House, uh, shadowing and occasionally meeting with the president. This is clearly about as desirable a a post-college position as one can get, and maybe even a guarantee of a marvelous job as soon as uh, the six months are completed. We are in our first meeting with the president. No one wants to screw up. After about 10 minutes, in which the president uh, speaks in general about his busy day, he asks if anyone has anything to say. No one really wants to be speaking, um, though, though there are a few mumbled uh, comments, and, and, uh, uh, and not to, they weren't too well thought out, um, and uh, uh, the meeting is about to break up. Then I can't imagine what got into me. Maybe it had to do with having a brother who was a Marine in Afghanistan. I say, sir, I have a suggestion. Uh, a suggestion. The others gasp, but at this point, I have no way out, uh, much as I would have preferred to be in Afghanistan. I say, sir, um, people must often say to you, sir, it's my great honor to meet you. After all, you are the president of the United States, and they acknowledge uh, that that is pretty impressive compared to whatever it is they do. Well, now, next week, you're going to be preparing, uh, presenting the Medal of Honor to a, a Marine who jumped on the uh, li- a live grenade to save a fellow Marine. He jumped on a live grenade to save a fellow Marine. Um, well, um, it seems to me that compared to this, being president of the United States is pretty small potatoes. So maybe you you should um, say the words others say to you um, when when you present the medal to the winner. The next, the, this time the gasps of the others uh, could be uh, heard in the next room, and they and I figured I might as well start putting on my coat and head for Wendy's to look for work. For about thirty seconds, that seemed like forever. The president looked frighteningly stern and then said, say no more. There was a long pause. Then the president said, consider it done. I took off my coat. (laughs) And there you have it, another Steve Goldberg daydream. And we always appreciate his work. We never know where it's coming from. And now we switch from the sublime to the absolutely beautiful, and it's adoption we're going to talk about next, and especially in November for National Adoption Month. This is another story brought to us by Brave Love, a movement that's dedicated to changing the perception of adoption by acknowledging birth moms for their brave decision to place their child for adoption and give them the gift of life. And on their website, bravelove.org, A young lady named Sandra Sharp shared her powerful letter 
to her birth mother and recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. I was in second grade when my parents told me I was adopted. There were so many questions that I wanted answered, but knew they never will be. There were times when I would look in the mirror, staring at myself, wondering what you might look like. The color of your hair, eyes, and skin, the sound of your laugh, the way you smile. Wondered if you thought about me every day. When I was younger, I thought I was a mistake, that that was the only reason you gave me up. I would be in tears thinking that there was something wrong with me. You placed me outside of a building and left me alone to have some people brought me to an orphanage. I would have hard feelings against you and didn't care about you. All I could think was, why? Why did you leave me? You abandoned me and I felt unwanted. But that was a mistake. It dawned on me that if you had kept me, my life would be completely different. I would be in China, speaking a different language, perhaps having a different religion. I wouldn't have the friends I have now. All my experiences with my friends and family wouldn't have even existed. I'm 21 now, and I still have questions. But most importantly, I want to thank you. It must not have been easy to give up your own child, but what you have given me was a family that loves me, cares for me, and new opportunity. Even though we are thousands of miles apart, I feel that you are still a part of me. And a part of that still remains a mystery, but you still have a hold on me nonetheless. Who knows? Maybe I'll go back to China where it all began. Maybe we will eat at the same restaurant and make eye contact across the room, but we'll never know, but we'll never realize who we are looking at. Or maybe we will just know in our hearts and reunite. I have always fantasized about that part. I hope the weather is nice wherever you are, living life well and maybe even raising some kids of your own. I wish you stay in good health and wish you all the luck in the world. And I just want to tell you thank you and that I love you. Wow, Sandra Sharp, and that's bravelove.org. A powerful letter to her birth mother and a beautiful letter. We want to read you one more story from bravelove.org from a woman named Lib who works at a pregnancy and adoption support center and wrote about her recent experience with a birth mom. Lib gave us permission to read her story, and Faith brings it to us now. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to work with a birth mom throughout her labor, subsequent C-section, and the two days she spent in the hospital with her sweet baby girl. This mother was 19. This was her third child. Her first child had been taken away by Child Protective Services, She was parenting her second child and had just returned from a recovery facility in order to be a better mother. She had made an adoption plan for this third child because she knew this was the best thing. She continually cited that she wanted to do what was right for her unborn child and the child she was currently parenting. Rarely did she mention her own needs and desires. As we sat in the operating room while she had a C-section, I was in there because her family never showed up. I just kept thinking. This is brave. Originally, the birth mom did not want to see her child, but the plans changed. She did want to see her, hold her, love her. She even ended up naming her. As I watched this mom lovingly, gently, with all affection, hold her daughter, feed her, change her diaper, all while knowing that she would have to let her go soon, it was clear. 
This was love. At the relinquishments, this mother had tears in her eyes because of the love she had for her child. But she also had the courage to offer her children, this baby and her other child, the best life possible. She put her needs and her wants aside because of the genuine love she had for her children. Thinking back, it was so obvious what I had witnessed. This was brave love. And thank you, Faith. And thank you, Lib, for sharing that story with us. And to the folks at bravelove.org, thank you for all you do, connecting so many women and so many people with these stories. They're beautiful stories of sacrifice. And that's always love when sacrifice is involved. It's the ultimate love, of course. We know it when we see it. This is Our American Stories, Adoption Stories. We bring them to you all month, every November, National Adoption Month. with our American stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and so much more. And on This Day in History, this person was inducted into his profession's Hall of Fame. Although Canada is not a monarchy, this man is considered their prince. He dominated a sport for 20 years without any of the physical skills needed to even play in the National Hockey League. Yet he is known as the Great One. A three-on-one Edmonton break back to Gretzky. He scores! He's hockey's biggest star and a Canadian hero, but he's also the husband of an American. He married actress Janet Jones in 1988 and became a U.S. citizen soon after. Wayne Gretzky, born January 26, 1961, played 20 seasons in the National Hockey League. He is the leading scorer in NHL history with more goals and more assists than any other player. Think about this. He tallied more assists than any other player has scored in total points. That's goals and assists combined. And he is the only NHL player to total over 200 points in one season, a feat he accomplished four times. Gretzky was born and raised in Brantford, Ontario. Each year when the cold set in, his backyard was converted into a private hockey rink. 
Day, night, and countless pre-dawns, a frail, undersized boy practiced while his father watched through the kitchen window, drinking coffee and issuing drills that looked like they came more from a chess instructor than a hockey coach. Pure talent and desire lifted the prodigy to organized hockey at the age of six. From there, it was a short leap for full coast-to-coast fame. Here's Gretzky's biographer, Rick Riley. He lived a life like none of us can imagine. He could skate before he could walk. And he became this sort of human icon in, in Canada at 10 years old. He was swamped by other 10-year-olds for autographs. By 13, he was on National Hockey Night in Canada. So he's grown up sort of like John F. Kennedy Jr. He's been the Prince of Canada. How could this young kid achieve such success in a country where every kid is born with skates on their feet? Take a look at these numbers given to us by Jim Taylor of the Calgary Sun. In his 9- and 10-year-old year, he scored 195 goals. And the people in the town said, yeah, well, Whitley gets in the next year. He'll never score 195 again. And they were right. The next year, he scored 378. From an early age, the Great One earned his nickname, not just for his on-ice superiority, but also for his off-ice humility. Here's his childhood buddy, Brian Rosetto. I used to come home, and I'd score a goal, and I'd be doing cartwheels. And he'd come home, and they'd win 13 to 1. I'd say, how'd you do? He says, we won. I said, did you get any goals? Yeah. How many? Eleven. And that's the way he was. When Gretzky turned 14, he began playing in the minor leagues with guys who were in their 20s. And he dominated there, too. Despite his unimpressive stature, strength, and speed, Gretzky's intelligence and reading of the game were unrivaled. He was adept at dodging checks from opposing players and he could consistently anticipate where the puck was going to be and execute the right move at the right time. Here's a kid that weighed 170 pounds soaking wet. If you got into an arm wrestling competition, you could probably drag a couple of girls out of the stands that would beat him. Guts was not that fast. In fact, he was slow. And not that strong. In fact, he was weak. You know, and not that big. In fact, he was tiny. He was always dead last in the conditioning drills. He benched a buck forty. I mean, you almost don't need barbells. You know, you just do the bar. I said, this guy looks like an anorexic rock star. He's the least athletic-looking person. These little pipe cleaner arms. But there was something about him that he just had this sixth sense. He knew people. He could see shadows. He could feel movement. He said it was almost like having deja vu all the time. The average guy in the league thinks one play ahead. The superstars think two plays ahead. And Gretzky thinks three plays ahead. In 1978, he signed with the Indianapolis Racers of the World Hockey Association, where he briefly played before being traded to the Edmonton Oilers. As an Oiler, he established many scoring records and led his team to four Stanley Cup championships. Then Wayne met wife Janet at a Los Angeles Lakers game in 1987, and on July 16, 1988, married in a lavish ceremony at St. Joseph's Basilica that was broadcast live across Canada. Immediately after the wedding, Gretzky received his American citizenship. Just days after that, on August 9th, he was traded to the Los Angeles Kings. It's the biggest trade in sports history. He wasn't a rookie, he wasn't 
over the hill. He was in his prime. His trade to the Kings had an immediate impact on the team's performance, eventually leading them to the 1993 Stanley Cup Finals. And he is credited with popularizing hockey across the United States. Let's take a look back at his trade to the Los Angeles Kings. Canada lost their prince, but America received the sun. Here in Los Angeles, nobody cares about anything, let alone hockey. But all of a sudden, the right people were going, and it was the in thing to do. We were bringing Ronald Reagan before the games to give us pep talks. I mean, Sylvester Stallone came before the game to give us pep talks. What an impact it made on this team. The sale of jackets, caps, jerseys went from dead last to number one of all sports teams. A succession of star-studded sellouts more than doubled the value of the franchise as the Kings won their first playoff series in seven years, beating the once-indomitable Oilers. In a single season, Wayne Gretzky sold ice hockey to a city built on sand. He reinvented the Los Angeles Kings and got Hollywood and media corporations involved and interested in hockey, which has carried over until today. Wayne going to Los Angeles not only saved hockey in California, it saved the NHL. Gretzky played briefly for the St. Louis Blues before finishing his career with the New York Rangers. His retirement in the Big Apple was a heavy-hearted goodbye that was felt across the world. Here's a look back. Gretzky looking, Gary Curry, McSorley to Gretzky! He did it! He did it! Gretzky is the Babe Ruth of his sport. Gretzky as an individual stood above his contemporaries to an even greater extent than did Michael Jordan. If you compare a statistic to any other sports, I mean, you know, it would have, somebody would have to come next year and hit 95 home runs <laughs> or something like that. This is definitely the greatest player that ever played the game. You could almost see a smile come on his face the minute he stepped on the ice because that's where he could be, Wayne Gretzky, do what he enjoyed the most. I think what Gretz did for hockey can never be forgotten. He changed the game. He gave it grace, he gave it space, he gave it speed, he gave it artistry. The further he gets from us, the more we'll see what he did will never be accomplished again. He basically took a league on his shoulders and carried them to a place that nobody, and I mean nobody, 20 years ago would ever have thought hockey would be right now. He was the last hockey player who came from the game that was part of us. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll now say these words for the last time ever in this building. Hockey fans, tonight's first star, number 99, Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> said that, and I'm not the first person to say this, but he's always been a better person than he has been a hockey player. When you really get to know him, then you know why they call him the great one. At the time of his retirement in 1999, Wayne held 61 NHL records. Today he holds 60. After his retirement, he was immediately inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame making him the most recent player to have the waiting period waived. The NHL retired his jersey number 99 league-wide, making him the only player to receive this honor. Wayne and Janet have five children 
and now reside in Thousand Oaks, California, where just a few years ago, their son played on the same Oaks Christian High School football team with both Joe Montana and Will Smith's boys. He's made the record book obsolete, said former Minnesota general manager Lou Nanny. His only point of reference is himself. Wayne Gretzky. This day in history. And that was just a great piece. Uh, it's Greg Hengler doing the doing the honors. Grace, speed, artistry. And I love that line in the piece. He was always a better person than a hockey player. <laughs> that tells you a lot. It actually touches you. And I'd seen him play a few times in Madison Square Garden. It was the thrill of a life, and I wasn't even a hockey fan. And uh, <clears throat> they say Michael Jordan changed basketball, but he had a lot of help. Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. There were all kinds of guys who re- revived basketball in the 1980s. But Gretzky truly did something in the NHL that no other athlete, I believe, has ever done for a single sport. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you greatness, always, when we can. Wayne Gretzky, The Life.